This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Hannah Strong. I'm Petra's father, the writer formerly known as Marshall Schaefer. (laughs) So on the show this week, we have a complicated genius being confronted in Tar, a robot girl becomes an icon in Megan, and on Film Club, it's another tale of a self-destructive genius in Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Marshall Schaefer, we are so excited to have you with us. We're very glad you're a morning person and have gotten <laughs> up at the crack of dawn in New York to, to talk to us today. How are you? I'm great. Like the two of you all, I'm sure we are all wishing that we were on the beaches of Venice once again recording this podcast together. Last time I was on here, the same trio was here, but having a great start to the year in New York. Already some great movies, which is a shocker. Dumpuary is really coming through and plenty of exciting pieces. So glad to be on here to talk about 2022, 2023, and uh, even further back in the past. Yeah. I mean, that was probably one of the more decadent things we've done on this podcast, as much as I enjoy um, recording every episode that we kind of sat on the beach, passing a microphone (laughs) back and forth in Venice was, uh, yeah, that that may have been when we've peaked. Um, But yeah, for those (laughs) listeners who maybe don't recall exactly your uh, CV from from that episode. Do you want to do a little kind of recap of who you are? Sure. I'm a freelancer based out of New York. I write most commonly for Slant, Decider, uh, The Playlist, and Slash Film. Well, you know, hopefully we will get you writing for Little White Lies as well, too, because you do feel a bit of the <laughs> part of the Venice Little White Lies coverage furniture. But um, <laughs> Hannah, speaking of Little White Lies, you've got the new speaking issue. Speaking of part of the furniture. Speaking of it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of iconic furniture, Hannah's Girl. <laughs> yeah, a film that we all saw together in Venice is the subject of the new issue. Yes. Uh, all the Beauty and the Bloodshed. That's very exciting. Yes, we're so excited to launch this one. It's surreal. It feels, I mean, every issue feels special. I'm like a parent saying, you know, oh, I love all my children equally. But, you know, th- this one, I think when we saw it in back in Venice, I think certainly Sophie, uh, Monks, Kaufman and I, there was a real sense that this felt like a very special film. And obviously it won the Golden Lion. And we were very excited that the kind of stars aligned. and We were able to do a whole issue about it because it's not often, I think, that a documentary comes along that we get to do something kind of bigger on we i think the last one we did was man on wire so you know very long time ago and it was such a great kind of opportunity to feature another work of fact i I don't i don't i i think it's 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 a difficult one to frame because um the film itself is it's part kind of memoir part activism story and it felt like a real kind of convergence of things we're interested in um you know kind of the politics of filmmaking, the politics of art and being able to kind of expand that out and talk about Nan Golden as this kind of iconoclast uh, that she is. And and she is just such a kind of, not only an incredible photographer, but her activism against the kind of opioid crisis and against the Sackler family really like speaks for itself. So yeah, we were, we were just unbelievably happy that it all came together and we were able to speak to Laura and Nan, which is kind of a, 
coup. Like Nan, Nan does not do interviews. So um, yeah, we're very, very honored that we were able to do that. And yeah, I'm super, super happy. We're recording it this this podcast today on the day it hits shelves so by the time you are listening to this you'll be able to go and buy a copy everywhere so yeah please do and i think there'll be more kind of coming up on the podcast about it soon um from david and sophie definitely it, it's funny because obviously we don't want to judge books by their covers and we don't want to judge films by their titles <laughs> but what a beautiful title and what a stunning cover you guys have created for for this film, even though it has so much more going on. Yeah, shout out to Nicole Rifkin, who designed the cover. She's an incredible illustrator and we wanted to work with her for ages and we're just kind of waiting for the right project to come along. And this felt like such a natural fit for her. And yeah, she, she really like absolutely knocked it out of the park. So we're very happy to kind of have created something that we feel in some way measures up to that, you know, that kind of very evocative title. And the title like reveal within the film, um, when you kind of find out what the title means, it's very it's a very emotional moment in the film. Was, I think it was kind of a collective gasp in the cinema when everyone realised what it refers to. So yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited for people to watch the film. And it feels like one that maybe isn't going to kind of get the awards love it maybe deserves. I think that, I don't know, there's just, there's this feeling in my head that the Sacklers still have a lot of power and that might kind of hinder its awards glory. But, you know, awards glory isn't everything. And I think Nan would much prefer that this film is seen by people who it resonates with and that it maybe has some part in enacting more change than it gets a few shiny statues. So I feel like I was only a very small part in shepherding this issue into the world, but I'm, I'm very, very happy to play even the tiniest role in this one. And speaking of not judging things by their cover, let's also talk about the contents. There's a wonderful interview inside recorded by Layla with our favorite, Elise Diop, director of the fantastic Saint-Omer, which I also share Hannah's worry will not necessarily get the awards love it deserves uh, after collecting some serious trophies at the Venice Film Festival as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting because we will come on to all this jazz later, but that was a film that obviously got a huge amount of recognition and and I think is a much more interesting film than the sort of what we consider to be awards bait nowadays. And I, and I do wonder whether we've sort of lost something. But before we move on, I was just wondering, Marshall, as our kind of representative of the city of New York, like <laughs> all the beauty, all the bloodshed, like as a portrayal of just like that downtown vibe, is, it, does that still exist in New York anymore? To some extent, I would say there's been a lot of Twitter chatter recently about sort of the disappearance of that sort of artistic community in large part because of the way that rent has changed and it's just so much less affordable to live in Manhattan. I would say maybe that sort of subculture now resides in Brooklyn primarily. But I think of that generation of people, uh, they a lot of them have still held on to the places in which they lived and created at the time. I actually didn't see the film in Venice. I saw it at the New York Film Festival where it was the centerpiece selection. It was just really incredible. You could see how many people from that community and from that scene came together. It really felt like a special hometown film. So those who were lucky enough to survive the period there to celebrate Nan, uh, Laura, and the resilience of that twin spirit of art and activism that arose out of crisis then and persists through crisis now. Yeah, I think that's something so beautifully captured in the new issue. Some of the images that you guys have of the activism itself was bringing a tear to my eye. But yeah, we should get a move on to the films. We've got a pretty exciting week. Uh, so yeah, let's get started. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Tar is set in the international world of classical music. Todd Field's latest centers on Lydia Tarr, widely considered to be the greatest living composer and conductor. Lydia is busy preparing the Berlin Philharmonic for a recording of Mahler's Fifth Symphony, which will secure her legacy. But her life and career is threatened when unsavory allegations about her behavior begin to surface. So Hannah, even before this was kind of put out, this was lauded as going to be something that was going to secure Kate Blanchett all sorts of uh, shiny gold statuettes in her cabinet. Like, do you think it lived up to that expectation? 
Well, I suppose we will we will see in a few weeks how many more little shiny statues she's going to get because obviously award season's only really just kicking off, I guess. We've had a kind of slew of them so far and it all culminates in late March, early April with the Oscars. It's going to be a kind of Kate Blanchett, Michelle Yeoh showdown, I think, on, on the Oscar night. But yeah, I, I think this was a big, like, people were expecting big things and i think it's maybe been a little while since kate had a good you know really meaty role um i i liked her a lot in nightmare alley i think she does a lot with a kind of supporting role in that film she's really deliciously malevolent and really has like bradley cooper wrapped around her little finger and i enjoyed that very much and this is something kind of different is i think it's a much more restrained performance you start off with this character lydia tar who is you know at the peak of her powers we see her she's literally introduced doing a new yorker festival talk about her career and launching a book called tar on tar and i find the opening kind of 10 minutes so funny because it has this incredible Incredible, almost like a it's basically a monologue by adam gopnik who is talking about tar's career and how she's the protege of leonard bernstein and how you know she's uh, regarded as the female composer and going through all these amazing achievements of hers and uh, tara sat there on the stage just kind of listening to him like with this like very like oh go on like smile on her face and it feels like a kind of a parody <laughs> when you're watching it it's very kind of wry and knowing and then over the next kind of two hours you are seeing the slow undoing of this woman all of it is kind of by her own design like she has really like everything bad that happens to tar is because tar deserved it which i found very kind of satisfying in a way i think a lot of times when we see films about powerful women suffering a big fall from grace it's because of outside forces kind of conspiring against them but tar is just a a very unpleasant person and you understand that unpleasantness i think you understand why she has become the way she is and what she's kind of faced you know the kind of misogyny and the homophobia within not only the kind of classical music world but with but within this like very upper class you know very like rarefied society that she moves through and she carries herself very much with this how would i describe it this kind of air that she is like you know she she is better than everyone around her and she knows she's better and she has worked extremely hard to be better so that's what i kind of you know i'm I'm always here for like a grand display of hubris that like topples down into this kind of uh, almost like shakespearean like fall from grace that she has and she's a bit she reminds me a bit of king leah i think it's just it's so rare that we get these films with these like reprehensible characters who don't necessarily get what they deserve but you are like kind of totally on board with it you're totally like fascinated and just in i i just was like i i did a kind of 180 on on it because i wasn't so keen on it at venice when i saw it but the more i thought about it the more i just think it's such an engrossing portrait of a person's downfall in in a kind of way that manages to be satisfying and unsatisfying at the same time you kind of get the the ending the parting shot i think is one of the kind of most like divisive of the year and uh, yeah i mean it's kate blanchett you know she's just naturally one of the most charismatic women on the planet and to see her playing such a repellent person is like just such a incredible display for her talent but also very just engrossing she just really like you know i I could watch her do the dishes like i i just think she's such a incredible Kate Blanchett, Jean Dielman, when? <laughs> if anyone could do it, she could. Yeah, I, I mean, it's been watching her on the press tour has been delightful because she's so different. And I mean, I sound like an idiot saying, oh, she's really different from the character. But you couldn't kind of, I think, find like two polar opposites between Lydia Tara and Kate Blanchett. You know, you see her on Hot Ones, like talking about eating chicken wings. And, and she just seems like the most kind of delightful human being. And then as Tara, she's so kind of repellent and standoffish but cool she's very cool character (laughs) you know you kind of you would love to you would be terrified of her but you would like want to kind of have a dinner with her just to see what kind of insane things she would say yeah i i i'm very not as kind of hot on this as i think a lot of people are like the the tar fandom is pretty insane and like there's a lot of tar memes doing the rounds but i definitely understand why it's picked up the kind of traction it has and why blanchett specifically has kind of picked up such goodwill within um the awards race 
So Hannah, in retrospect, are you glad now that uh, the studio had you change your review on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> to fresh? Oh, wow. I am yes, actually, I yeah. That happened. yeah. They knew the 180 you were going to do. <laughs> they thought my review sounded more positive than I did, which is, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes these things at festivals, because we're watching, you know, four or five films a day, it can take you a little while to kind of process it. And there are things that I saw at festivals that I thought were bad that I now think are good and uh, that I thought were good that I now think are bad. Not Never normally a kind of like complete one extreme to the other, but Tar definitely has, I've warmed to it a lot, which is funny because it's such an oppressively like chilly, cold film. And I think maybe part of that is because I love Berlin and it's set. Majority, the majority of the film is in Berlin and there's lots of amazing shots of Tar running around parks and kind of these dingy streets. And it just reminds me of when I used to live there and I kind of love that pervasive chilliness. And I have to kind of shout out Nina Haas as well because I think like mm-hmm. in all the... In all the chatter about this film, we're, we're, we're losing the fact that Nino Haas is like incredible supporting role in this film and such a kind of foil to Blanchett. I, I want another like two hand just with those two. Mm-hmm. Every cutaway to her was just chef's kiss. Yeah, truly. It, it, it's very interesting because you talk about this as being this very reprehensible character. I kind of took that too, but I remember sitting in the screening room. I'm not sure if you guys were there too, but people were kind of laughing and cheering and it, it very much felt that like for some people, Tara's the hero of this film and isn't it terrible that she has this um, <laughs> mm-hmm. come up yeah. with like, Marshall, how did how was that experience for you? Do you think this is kind of like a litmus test for your kind of personal boundaries? <laughs> Could be. I think we were all at the same screening in Venice where there was applause at the end of the Juilliard scene where she basically rhetorically dismembers a uh, BIPOC pangender student uh, who refers to themselves as such, which just struck me as very odd. I don't always think that Todd Field knows quite the lingo uh, that he's trying to skewer or uh, trying to portray. But I definitely do think that there is some element of a litmus test. I think that it is very easy to look at this a very straight-faced, down-the-middle movie. And I think the more that people have sat with it and the more people have seen it, I think there's a certain cheekiness and a certain skewering of the kind of audience that would devour something like Tar a little without reflection. The movie that has actually come to mind the most over the past few months as a comparison in my mind is the wolf of wall street obviously completely different in tonalities but taking a sort of reprehensible figure like a jordan belfort or like a lydia tar and really just kind of letting them be wild crazy doing some pretty despicable things and just kind of letting the audience take that in and not really forcing you to take some sort of moral stance against them And sometimes finding really fascinating results by just watching people naturally respond to them in the way that they do. I think that for me, what has stood out, especially as I watched it a second time over the weekend for Lydia Tarr, I think she's a very interesting embodiment of, uh, to play the, the token American on the show today, a very interesting sort of warped view of the American dream, uh, not to spoil too much about her background, but Tar is very interested in this sort of self-mythologizing, very much building up her own ethos, but she always wants to believe in herself as this sort of rugged individual that makes it. She asks no favors for her gender, her sexuality, which have in some ways helped her uh, and other ways have hindered her. But she kind of wants to close the door behind her on a lot of things, and that ends up being a significant portion of her downfall. There's a fellowship uh, to help mentor female conductors, and uh, one of the early scenes in the film is her meeting with Mark Strong, whose wig I see uh, we will interrogate shortly. But she basically says to him, why do we need this to be gendered? I don't really feel the need for it anymore. And I think that becomes a very interesting element of her downfall. Uh, the ways in which she sort of wants to be the only person to be who she wants to be and not really giving anybody the chance to surpass her from below or beneath. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing because, I mean, clearly Todd Field is not interested in making just kind of a binary of like good guys and bad guys, Mm -hmm. which is why you have Kate Blanchett with this charm and you never lose sight of like she's where she is because of like this incredible talent. And Mark Strong... That wig, it signals that we are supposed to fundamentally find this person as odious. But I mean, one of the things, it's funny that you mentioned the Wolf of Wall Street, because obviously that was a real person. 
Why do you think people were so shocked that Lydia Tarr is not a real person? <laughs> yeah, I think it, it took me by surprise, at least, because there was none of this in Venice, not to put ourselves on some sort of giant intellectual pedestal that we can recognize fact from fiction. But the movie plays it so straight-faced. You really believe in this world that it's created. It's pulling from so many real-life signifiers. It's it's inserting itself into certain debates. I think, yeah, that this signifies like Adam Gopnik, like the references to Bernstein, and I'm not going to spoil the kind of great reveal, which I hope everyone goes and Googles after this about if you Google Bernstein and Tar, you'll get some great, great, great insights from field on that. And Hilda Gudnadutta did the score and is mentioned by name in the film. And she's this Icelandic composer who has kind of lit the world on fire in the past few years she won best original score for joker and scored tar and scored women talking and it's really risen through the ranks of what is still a very like male dominated industry and particularly film scores still really really heavily dominated by men so i think there's also when i will confess when i first was googling the film <laughs> back in like july of last year before venice i did think she was a real person because the log line does not indicate that like it's not a real story it says the log line for the film was something like a film about the life of composer Lydia Tarr and I was like what <laughs> who, who is this person and I think as well because the, the character is so fully realized we all know someone like this maybe not this what? Exact I don't know anyone like this <laughs> <laughs> who are you hanging out with <laughs> um we, we all know elements of this person, I should say. We all know that kind of careerism or that kind of uncomfortable feeling you might have had with a superior in the workplace. And, you know, I think this is taken to extremes in that she's a very beautiful, very charming woman in a kind of very rarefied position. But you can kind of, you know, e expand that and recognize these behaviors and recognize who is given a pass and who is not given a pass. And the kind of the thing that I think has really grown on me is this idea of what Tar is given grace for and what she's not given grace for in the film. And her kind of feeling her only remorse comes from the fact she's caught and that I think is like a very damning thing we've seen time and time again in, in Hollywood is that people that do wrong and not even just Hollywood in, in the wider world people that do things do wrong whether that's any number of moral or legal or a combination of both uh, failings they're only ever sorry they got, they got caught and you know I, I, I just think it's a it's such a treat to get a film for adults you know it's a film that really like takes some grappling with and 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 ignites debate like i've had a lot of kind of really interesting conversations about this film with people that really love it and i've read some amazing criticism from people that really don't like it and think it's quite a nasty film so i i just think in a kind of age of like endless prestige Oscar bait, it's nice to get something that I think does kind of maybe look like that on the surface, but beneath it's such a thorny, cheeky film as well. I think it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot funnier than I was expecting. Yeah, I don't, it's not marketed as a comedy at all. So I think the first time I felt a little queasy laughing at it, you know, it's a film that's very much about irony, specifically tragic irony, a lot of which you can laugh at. I think what stands out to me is a bit disappointing about it. I still really like this film. I think it's immaculately crafted. I think Blanchett's performance is outstanding. But I do find that it's a bit of a one-note tragedy where basically all you have is this tragic irony. It's just like, how many times can we watch all of these really cascading sets of forces, you know, be it gender, sexuality, her cruelty, these things that on the one hand had once benefited her or she thought she could push aside the chickens come home to roost. And I think at the end, I feel a little bit of emptiness around that. I think the film, a number of people have kind of reduced it to like, what if Daniel Plainview, but girl boss, which is not wrong, but, and I think obviously it's an incredibly simplistic read of a film that is very uh, deep and masterfully constructed, but it gets to the core for me of a lot of times it's posing these questions and I don't always get the sense of why it's important to Todd Field to pose them in the first place. And especially given that there are so few answers given, not that I wanted them from a film like this, but 
I don't get the sense that I don't think he always has the answer. I think it's just a bit of thorny provocation, which has its place. But there were times when I just felt myself wanting a little bit more. Or, you know, if we want to critique, say, cancel culture, which is something that's brought up a lot, or um, hashtag she too, um, a lot of the, the, the movements around social justice representation uh, that have gotten a lot of traction over the last few years that the film is holding up to have in a little bit more of a sophisticated debate that moves beyond slogans and asks us to, to think really intensely about how these things actually play out in the real world. I just found that there wasn't much in the way of replacement values. If the left has it wrong, the right has it wrong. Where is where does Todd Field stake out Tar or himself in this dialogue? It just kind of felt like punting the punting the ball into the audience and letting us just kind of fumble the hot potato to mix like three metaphors there. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I've actually found myself like I sort of digesting the film. It, it sort of improved in my estimation, but when I read a lot of interviews and Q and A's and stuff with Todd Field, he seems to really claim that there really isn't a lot of provocation and this is just a crap character study. I'm not trying to kind of engage with that. And it's so clear to me that he is that um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I am slightly annoyed. But anyway, we've got two more great films to move on to. So let's get some scores on this. Hannah, do you want to go first? In anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect. Yeah, I think it. it I would go a four, three, four, because I did have that initial kind of when I saw it, back in Venice I, I I wasn't really necessarily the biggest fan but I do think it's really grown on me um Field definitely in press has really grown on me as a character I think he's very funny and very sharp and the fact he manifested this role for for, <laughs> for Kate by writing it before they'd even had a conversation um I just kind of love that manifest destiny spirit that he has and also i i would just like to point listeners who will become readers to the interview we have with field in the issue by a friend of the podcast charles romesco because he talks about how he helped to invent big league chew a brand of chewing gum in the u.s and it is just such a delightfully insane story for a kind of fittingly odd man but yeah i i'm I'm hoping that we get another film by Todd Field sooner rather than later because it was such a big gap between his last one and this one. And I think even if there are things in the film that I don't think are executed as well as they could be or that annoy me, he's someone that I think is interesting enough that I'm always kind of going to want to know what he's up to and see what he's doing. Definitely. Uh, Marshall, what about you? I will go 544. I was really, really anticipating this one as a big fan of Todd Field's last two films. I do think it delivers in a, in a very significant way. I do think the film kind of spins its wheels at a certain point. And, you know, as I was speaking to the immaculate craft and performance, especially on second viewing, I did find it a little bit robotic at times, which is very interesting because it's oftentimes a word that's used throughout the film to describe sort of the antithesis of art itself. I, I know it sounds like I'm sort of playing the the tar naysayer in the group, but <laughs> I still do think this is a fantastic film. And as Hannah was saying, sort of the the drama for adults that is as weighty and thorny and complicated as these audiences deserve. I think I'm cl- more with Hannah in the kind of the four three four. I think there is that slight thing that happens to you in the f- festival that it normally would have been a five, but you get so into kind of the commodity of your time. And when I saw the running time, I was like, no, I'm so tired. <laughs> but yeah, the pacing for me was not ideal. There were elements where I thought it was trying to have its cake and eat it too. I was very glad that I didn't have to have a Christmas where the older members of my family had seen this film and were all like Justice Fatar because I suspect that would have happened. But yeah, a absolute fantastic performance, certainly from Kate Blanchett. And Nina Haas, I am I'm sad to see it doesn't seem to be a big person in awards contention, but I think she's the absolute, you know, cherry on the cake of this film. She's fantastic. Anyway, pivoting genres very hard <laughs> another problematic fave however another girl boss <laughs> another girl boss <laughs> they hate to see a girl boss winning next up is Megan. millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Toy company roboticist Gemma designs Megan, an artificial intelligence doll programmed to be a child's greatest companion and a parent's best ally. When her eight-year-old niece Katie is orphaned, Gemma becomes her guardian and decides to pair her with the Megan prototype. Unfortunately for the grieving pair, Megan becomes violently overprotective of her new friend. So, Marshall, we are terminally online. The Megan memes are delightful, and I have been seeing you tweeting up a storm about how much you love this movie. What is it for you that worked for, with Megan? Yes, bow to Megan. <laughs> no, I weirdly, I missed the the original train of memes around the trailer drop in the madness of festival season, so maybe it's just catching up for lost time. I was fully prepared for this to just be kind of a, a movie made for Twitter in the way that a lot of a TV shows I feel like now are just being made for screen caps. Mm-hmm. But I found this to be entirely delightful. It's really smart, really funny, plenty scary on a PG-13. Is it 14 in the UK? No, it's a 15. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Oh, well, oh, that's okay. unfair. Okay, <laughs> well, you know, I'll, I'll write to the BBFC after this, but yeah. <laughs> I think for me, what stood out is it was a bit of a a throwback, if it's possible to say a throwback to pre-2017. I feel like there's been sort of an invasion of the Jordan Peele social thriller style horror, where we're looking at society and institutions as these great forebearers of all the the horror in society. And this is just kind of an all-out scream fest uh, in a sort of campy, chilling way that I feel like we used to get a lot more from the genre. I think the the way that it frames the commentary around how we use technology to outsource, offshore, automate a lot of portions of our lives is very intelligent and sharp uh, and a little bit unexpected, which I admired. It didn't just go for the very obvious technology is bad, throw away all your devices, unplug Alexa, etc. And I, I think it, it, it comes very organically to the conclusions that it ultimately does, which is whenever you take the humanity out of a lot of these tasks that we've been doing forever, you shouldn't be surprised when the result is this entirely inhuman creation. And Hannah, you saw this last night, is that right? Big multimedia screening, was that good fun? Yeah, it was, yeah. I'm I'm quite a skeptic when it comes to this kind of film. I wasn't like a, a Chucky, the, the Chucky reboot, the film I thought was bad. And I've not seen the TV show, apparently that's actually quite good. But Annabelle has never done a, anything for me. Uh, what's the other one? Brams, the boy, like n- not not a thing I enjoy. I just don't think dolls are that scary. <laughs> Sorry, I'm different. No, it's because <laughs> you're younger, because you didn't live through this insane period that I lived through as a child, where we were told that Chucky the doll was going to come into all of our psyches and cause us to commit murder. Yeah, I mean, that's be true. Be very grateful that you were born a few years later than me. Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, I, I was terrified of the aliens from Mars Attacks. So like, that's my like 90s baby <laughs> legacy. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, I I saw the memes and I'm always a bit, I, you know, I, I love memes. Uh, this is something all my friends know about me is that I, I absolutely adore a good meme, but I, I don't like anything that feels like it's been kind of produced with that in mind. I think more and more films and more and more particularly PR companies that are distributing and helping to market films are getting very savvy to what is going to sell on social media and what is going to kind of capture the zeitgeist. And this did feel like when the trailer dropped and it was just my 
entire timeline was just, you know, kind of memes of this creepy robot child dancing. I was a bit like, oh my God, this is going to be so bad. Uh, I'm actually, yeah, quite delighted that I had a really fun time with it. I think it is a really nudge, nudge, wink, wink film. It's very self-aware and very silly in a way, but you can tell that silliness is kind of deliberate. It's not so bad, it's good. It's just just good. I think a lot of that comes from Michaela Cooper, the screenwriter who has kind of, she's been working for a long time, but she really like broke through with Malignant, which was kind of, unceremoniously released during the pandemic and really like took on a life of its own on Twitter and social media and I have so many friends who are huge like malignant heads and love that film and any opportunity they will like kind of go off about how great it is so I think the anticipation for Megan was kind of quite high and I think Akela is very good at blending the kind of ridiculous and the sincere and doing so in a way that feels very satisfying as a as a kind of lover of horror films i think that alison williams was like a stroke of genius casting her as the kind of lead in this i think she is so good at playing it straight (laughs) like she you know i think some actresses might have been tempted to kind of try and go like quite campy with it but she just plays it like very kind of like i am a girl boss tech queen and i have accidentally created a robot that is going to destroy the world it's giving like elizabeth holmes like realness and and i i I love it like it's you know i think she as a performer is clearly very aware of how ridiculous it is but the way she doesn't translate that is like just so refreshing to see. I hate it when you feel like a performance is very self-conscious and they're like trying to be in on the joke. And I think that this is a real kind of like instance of the film is ridiculous and the situation is ridiculous, but everyone within the situation is taking it so seriously. And that's like why it works because, you know, yeah, fundamentally like a creepy robot doll trying to kill you is like a, a ridiculous situation. But when you have everyone taking it so seriously, but the kind of framing of the film and the kind of cuts and the editing is so kind of silly and ott it all kind of like amalgamates is that the word it all kind of like calcifies i don't know it it all kind of make just you know comes together in a way that is very satisfying as an audience member it's a very very delicate and difficult thing to do i think in the kind of modern horror landscape and i'm just really impressed at how well they pulled it off i will say my one complaint is that this film is 100 minutes and the last 15 minutes are so rushed. I don't know what happened, but it feels like everything just kind of comes together so quickly. And I would have liked to kind of maybe a little bit of a longer, like, drag it out of it. Let her do a, a bit more carnage. Let Megan be Megan a little bit longer. Because I, yeah, I was left a little bit kind of like, oh, that's the end. And, uh, you know, I just would have maybe liked a little bit more. But maybe I'm just like a bloodthirsty <laughs> deviant who wants the doll to murder more people. <laughs> I mean, we are probably going to get more Megan is the good news. This film has so far performed really, really well. Audiences are coming to see this. And, you know, something being very memeable rarely, well, not rarely, but often really doesn't translate. You don't see a lot of Avatar discourse, for example, online. But, you know, that has made all of the money in the world. Well, I mean, just to say quickly, the big example from last year was Morbius. Morbius memes were everywhere. And as we know, that crashed and burned. And then they thought because of all the memes, they could put it back in cinemas and it would perform really well. But no, (laughs) it it, it did not. I think one of the other smart things about the way they've, and I'm talking about film marketing, which is very inside baseball, but I do think it's really interesting, is that Akela Cooper and Gerard Johnston, the director, have talked about the fact there is a uncut or a harder cut version of this film, but they were asked to release one that was PG-13, as we've kind of discussed already because of the reception to the first trailer and how teenagers were getting so kind of like into it and so excited so i think releasing that cut which is suitable for families to take their teenagers to and then having like a harder cut for <laughs> for the um, home entries is like an incredibly smart strategy because it's giving us simultaneously something that is much more marketable for them as a studio but then it's satisfying for the kind of horror heads who want something more out there and extreme I do think there is some element of, I don't think Katie, the the young girl in the film, technically qualifies as Gen Z of sort of like the audience that would be consuming this, who really seem to resonate with it online. But I, the film does contain a certain amount of commentary around that generation and their relationship to technology that I have to imagine a lot of them found very interesting. This sort of uncanny valley doll raising questions around if a friendship, if a relationship is not entirely human or is mediated by some sort of technology, does that make it any less real? And 
I think one of the most terrifying elements of the film is that for a good portion of Megan, Katie doesn't seem to care. She doesn't distinguish a difference between the relationship with her adoptive mother, Allison Williams, and Megan. They perform basically a lot of the same functions, but Megan does it in a, a much more personalized, caring way. And her aunt, now adoptive mom, is aloof, more interested in her work, willing to just outsource a lot of it to the technology that she has around her. And I think that's a not necessarily the obvious sort of social commentary that I was expecting from this film. Yeah, it, it, it sort of seems to want to exist as a film first, as opposed to something like maybe like The Meg, which I watched just being just like, this is so determined to try and be a cult classic that we've actually ended up with something incredibly hollow. But yeah, I'm slightly wary of the sort of franchise building that may happen with Megan. But as a standalone little delight for the beginning of 2023. I, I, I was delighted by it. But yeah, we should get some scores on this so we can move on to Bob Fosse. Marshall, do you want to go first? Sure. I will go 244. Like I said, I just, not usually my kind of film, missed the initial wave of excitement around it and was very pleased to catch up and find that it both lived up to the expectation and is a very smart, entertaining film. Hannah, what about you? I would go 243 because of that ending, which I do think I just was a bit like, I, you know, I was having such a good time. I just wanted it to be a kind of better paced film. But I, 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 yeah, I think it's such a fun night at the cinema. It's definitely like, a. I think releasing it now is really smart because it's kind of really like pick me up, go to the cinema Friday night, get your popcorn and just laugh. And it is very fun with a kind of packed cinema of everyone like laughing at the same moments and kind of like recoiling in horror at what the doll is doing. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe this is, this is it for me. This is finally the horror franchise that I can like get on board with. Yeah, I'm just trying to think in the sequel, what becomes a four? Is it the A? <laughs> Gotta be. Yeah, I, I had a great time with this. Uh, the, the state of horror seems to be filled with a lot of horror films at the moment that seem slightly embarrassed to be horror films and are more kind of packages versus social commentary. So to see something that was just actually willing to enjoy being a really fun horror movie was delightful. So yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna go with Marshall, 244, but a very wary for Meg for Anne as it will inevitably come out. Next up on Film Club, All That Jazz. When he's not planning for an upcoming stage musical or working on a Hollywood film, Joe Gideon is popping pills and sleeping with women. The stress begins to take a toll when the ragged perfectionist, and soon he must decide whether his work and hedonism are worth risking his life. So Hannah, we've got another genius in the form of a semi-autobiographical Bob Fosse. Was this the first time that you'd come to all that jazz or a, a, a pleasant revisit? Yeah, it was a revisit for me. Long time listeners slash readers may remember we did a, a food and film when we were doing the first cow issue of Little White Lies in 2021. I did a cake based on all that jazz for this feature we were doing based on the idea of making cakes themed around new Hollywood classics. Layla, what was yours based on? Mine was based on um, Bonnie and Clyde, and I somewhat cheated because I am a trained chef. I never worked as a chef, but I went to cul culinary school, and I made a sort of four-foot-high tower croque and bouche that was like bleeding raspberry jam, and I accidentally kept CCing all the other contributors <laughs> in my emails where it, it then appeared like I was threatening them, which I think, yeah, was the way I was introduced to a lot of the Little White Lies contributors. So uh, sorry to them if they're listening. But yeah, my croc on beach was great. Yeah, I didn't know Layla at the time that well. And I was very like confused. <laughs> I thought I was just emailing the photographer about, I was just like, my cake is absolutely amazing. It's going to be the best one. But accidentally CCing all these people who were <laughs> hard at work. At Some own. of which were but strangers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all um, of which were strangers. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a very good feature even if I do say so myself if you haven't read that issue you should try and track down a copy because it, it's a lot of fun and so yeah I made a cake based on all that jazz it was in the shape of a heart a, an actual human heart and that is kind of a image within the film that we see recurring <laughs> because Joe Gideon is going through these like heart 
palpitations and an angina throughout his like incredibly stressful life that it's it's just stressful to watch it's like uh, you know uncut gems if it was about a hollywood producer basically and i think actually i don't know how much the safties talked about this film if they talked about it at all when they were talking about uncut gems but like this feels like a very clear precursor to that you know this man who is just living this absolutely unsustainable lifestyle and trying to have it all and with kind of disastrous results but yeah i i love this film i I actually was thrilled that i finally got around to watching it when i did because i was working on my book about spear coppola at the time and this has been a huge influence on her films and she loves posse she's talked about how much she loves posse many times but particularly the opening of this film which has this incredible scene where Joe wakes up and takes this cocktail of pills and is like getting ready for work very frenetically and it's all set to Vivaldi's Four Seasons and he looks in the mirror and says it's showtime which is like an iconic line that I'd heard many times before seeing the film and this was referenced in Marie Antoinette in the scene where Marie Antoinette is getting dressed by uh, the court and they use the same piece of Vivaldi music and it's a really like lovely way of paying homage but also showing the kind of like ludicrousness of a situation (laughs) yeah I, I, I mean I think this film is just incredible and for Fosse to like pull from his own experience and his own life in such a like unflattering way I think is you know it really shows why he was kind of one of the one of the best to ever do it and um it's like Schneider is just absolutely like it's a tour de force performance it's one of the all-time greats I was just going to compliment Hannah because I have to say um I I I did have some hubris in assuming that also my cake would be far surpass everyone else's because your heart cake was absolutely (laughs) stunning I was I I was very impressed but so Marsha you you this was not the first time you watched this as well but you were very excited to rewatch this yeah I watched this in college I believe in large part due to a recommendation by uh, the filmmaker David Fincher, who's a big Fosse devotee in ways that are not necessarily obvious. But if you really look for that influence, it's all over the place. I remember watching this around the same time that Birdman came out, which is another sort of portrayal of an artist trying to put together a big show, very unsustainable. And I remember just really feeling a strong contrast. No huge offense to Birdman, but I think Birdman is a movie that is a lot of people sitting around complaining why they can't create great art and why it's so hard to create great art. And all that jazz, the film about people who have those same struggles, but turn that struggle into genius art. This is just a film that is so wrapped up in its own creation, but not in a really cheeky way, in a really sincere way. That's really grappling with with the medium that's trying to find the vocabulary to express all this creative tension, all of Bob Fosse's life that's building up inside of him and is causing his body to fail. He lives for another eight years or so after this film comes out, but died tragically young at about the age of 60, I believe. And you really feel all of that working in there. For someone who is such a creature of the stage, the film is so alive with the grammar of film. It doesn't feel stagey. It doesn't feel like something that was meant for another medium. It feels entirely filmic. It's interesting that now, I mean, we touched on it earlier when we talk about kind of awards bait and what that means, that something like this feels so kind of confessional and actually very self-critical in many ways. And now kind of coming into the present day and what we consider these, there's a lot of semi-autobiographical films, but they tend to go back to coming of age. You cast yourself as kind of this very delightful young child. And it seems so brave to me watching this to have kind of such a damning indictment of your own legacy. I, you know, first few times I watched it, I, I, I think I was caught up maybe in the musical numbers. And um, now it just kind of, it does seem much sadder and much darker than perhaps I'd previously remembered. Well, I mean, it, the ending, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> the place it ends in. Yeah, I mean, you get a sense, I think, of the kind of enormous, I, I was going to, you know, that title of that Nick Cage film last year, um, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Like that, that, that is what you could call this film because it is just like this frenetic like life that he's created for himself that he doesn't seem to know any other way to be 
And even when, you know, he's kind of faced with this, you know, you are going to die if you carry on like this. He chooses art, essentially. (laughs) He chooses to carry on because it, it is in pursuit of something greater than himself. And I think like that's something that I'm such a sucker for in the movies. Like it's terrible. It's terrible that I feel that way. He chooses art because he has no other choice. Like he can't compel himself to do anything else, which is what I find, especially the final third of the film, whenever you start to see his family, his daughter and his estranged wife, I guess, start to come into his fantasies and really beg him not to die, not to give himself over in this way. I think there is a sort of mythology around people who create art in this way that you have to be some level of crazy and some level of just complete obliteration. You know, to quote real person Lydia Tarr, you must in fact stand in front of a god and obliterate yourself, which is very much what Fosse is doing here. But I think there is a, a begrudging acknowledgement that at this point, I'm so committed that I have no other choice, but I feel all these other things pulling me and I wish that I could stop myself. I wish that I could appreciate my family. I wish that I could derive the same satisfaction from the normal things that sustain people. But here I am, and I have no other choice but to just become a corpse. (laughs) Yeah, that's what really strikes me in my favorite number of the film, Everything Old is New Again, which is so moving. But I think the first few times I saw that, you know, I just thought like, oh, he's moved because it's such a lovely thing they've done for him. And watching it now, it feels like that's the moment for me where he confronts Bob Fosse is confronting that, like, I have no choice in this matter. I actually, here is the path in front of me, but it's not actually one that I I, I can take. And the weeping of Roy Schneider, who I think is just so perfect in this part, and the fact that he didn't have a dance background makes it all the more impressive. It's a much more devastating film, I think, coming to it a little bit older. Yeah. Any, Any last thoughts on all that jazz before we move on to our new segment? I, I I just like to read a, a little factoid that I thought was really interesting about this film at the Oscars because obviously it did it did incredibly well and again we were just talking earlier about you know fil- films for adults and um, the fact that this film was so kind of beloved. This was the last musical nominated for Best Picture until Beauty and the Beast, and it was the last live action musical to compete until Moulin Rouge. So it, it's interesting because I always think of of musicals actually doing like quite well with the Academy, but really like it, it, it takes something quite special usually. What a one to kind of have held that record for such a long time. Also a favorite of Stanley Kubrick, which, you know, the, the guy had taste. Tracks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, now that you mention it, I, I hadn't heard that factoid about the Oscars, but that makes sense to me because it kind of comes at the, the tail end of that heyday of the studio mm. musical and they'd become a little bit outmoded. I think people thought of them as this sort of sincere relic that didn't really hold up in an ironic time. And it kind of makes sense that, to me that all that jazz would be kind of like a nail in the coffin for that <laughs> stage of the studio musical because it is such an obliteration of all the things that apparently are needed to create something that's just bananas crazy. What an incredible ending for something that was kind of bringing in the age of the musical to an end. That that's kind of the final moment in some sense before we pick up in this sort of Disney-fied, much more kind of poppy, splashy moment. Thank you, Hannah. That fact has only kind of added to my appreciation of a film that I already loved very much. I'm very excited because we, we've got a few changes, a few new things that we're going to be tweaking and bringing in in the podcast this year. And one of those is the way that we're going to end the podcast. We're going to now be ending our episodes by asking guests to give us one non-movie cultural recommendation. And this can be anything. It can be an exhibition, an album, a game, something that defies easy classification. But it's great because so many of our guests have got so many interests outside of just watching films. And we kind of get to plug into further expertise. So Hannah, I I, I don't want to call you a piece of furniture again. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah, Icon of the Little White Lies world. Thank you. (laughs) I'm very excited for you to have our inaugural recommendation that isn't a movie. (laughs) Yes, um, initially when this was muted, this segment, I I really wanted to talk about the film Sinister. And then I was told, no, Hannah, you're not allowed to talk about movies. That's the whole point. And also, why do you want to talk about Sinister? Oh my God, it's 2023. But yeah, my my recommendation is (laughs) the exhibition, uh, This Will Not End Well at the Moderna Museet. It's 
in Stockholm in Sweden. So I apologize in advance <laughs> for anyone who doesn't have easy access to Stockholm. But if you are able to make it there before the exhibition finishes at the end of the month, I think it is the 26th of February that it finishes. This is a huge retrospective of Nan Golden's work. It is the first time in years, I think decades maybe, that her work has been presented in this way. And it's this far-reaching retrospective of her career, which has six of her slideshows in these unique spaces that have been created, especially for this exhibition. And it has some new work as well, some new compositions by Mika Levi that have been included. And it's obviously very timely in fitting with All the Beauty and the Bloodshed coming out. But I think, yeah, it's just an incredible exhibition. I was very lucky to go over in December with Sophie Monks Kaufman. We went just for the day, which was a kind of insane thing to do when you think about it. But um, yeah, we just hopped over to Stockholm and had an amazing day at this exhibition. And yeah, it's so beautifully curated and the space it's in is really well designed and yeah great exhibition i i think it probably will end up touring as well so maybe if you can't make it to stockholm keep an eye out because i'm sure it will be popping up in other places in kind of the year to come and and that slideshow format that is actually more what nan golding intended with her work am am, am i correct that's the way that she wanted it to be exhibited yes yeah that's completely it i mean nan golding if you've seen her work in a gallery it's probably as photos because it's obviously quite difficult to set up these quite complex slideshows but yeah this is the way that she would present them in her youth (laughs) at parties and at bars she would just set up the projector and and they would show them and play music and it's uh, it's kind of strange watching them in the gallery because it feels like a very like po-face like very respected like place whereas you can just imagine when these were showing in nan's community how lively the screenings would have been and how people would have been commenting and like pointing themselves out and things so it did feel a bit strange but yeah i mean that the absolutely beautiful slideshows and the way they've been curated is is i i think really incredible so yeah definitely if you are able to i recommend going to this but if not i'm just kind of shouting out that everyone should try and get to a Nan Golden slideshow at least once. (laughs) And Marshall, my friend and one of the more well-rounded human beings I've ever met in my entire life, I am (laughs) so excited to find out what your recommendation is. Well, you flatter me so. Like Hannah, I will also give a location-bound experience, although hopefully this one will be a little bit easier for those in the Little White Lives home base of London. This is a one-man show called Alex Edelman, Just For Us, that will be playing through February 26th at the Menier Chocolate Factory. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. Yeah, yeah, you did. That's wonderful theatre. There we go. Um, So there's been a lot of really interesting activity in New York over the past few years with comedians really exploring sort of the one man, one woman show, infusing it with a little bit of stand up, a little bit of confessional, working in the audience. And this is by far the best of any of them that I've seen. Alex Edelman's Jewish uh, American comedian. Basically, the premise of this show is he was engaging in some sort of silly online activity and a Twitter troll responded to him and says, you know, do you want to come see how I think it was like how white you really are? Come to this address this time, etc. Basically, a neo-Nazi meeting and he shows up. And the the show is about his experience there. Uh, and it's a really deeply funny, deeply moving, deeply incisive about the ways in which we construct whiteness, ethnic identity, and just a tight hour set that really brings down the house. Every celebrity who came through New York in 2021 and 2022 apparently saw it. So why not you? <laughs> uh, but if you can't make it in London, I think it will probably be recorded and put on some streaming platform at some point. So uh, just file the name at the back of your head uh, if you don't have the ability to see it. Oh, okay. So this played in New York and now it's it's currently in London. Okay, wonderful. Yes. Well, much like you hopefully coming to visit us in London too, we are, we are all for these transatlantic transitions of talent. <laughs> <laughs> just like Lydia Tarr, you will find me in a, in a New York tunnel, uh, hopefully soon. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much, Marshall, for getting up so incredibly early. We're very excited to have gotten you back on the pod, not just kind of summoning you off on a beach in Venice. We actually got you to take carve some time off out for us. You're welcome to do that to me again as well. <laughs> I would just like to put that out there. Challenge accepted. Well, if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us about LW Lies. Next week, it's another great week. We've got a love letter to the toxic age in Hollywood in Babylon. 
Gaspard Eliel's appears in a tragically a posthumous role in More Than Ever, and on Film Club, we return to the silent era in It. Thanks very much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth in Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Hannah Strong and Marshall Schaefer. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Sankness. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.